Welcome to Bonjour Chai, the definitely not the mafia edition. I'm Ilana Zakon in Montreal, taking the helm this week. This week, David's off to prepare for his wedding, and Avi's on the road again, but he'll be here in a minute, catching up with Rabbi Saul Emanuel, Executive Director of the Jewish Community Council of Montreal and Montreal Kosher. Rabbi Emanuel reached out to us to explain their side of the high cost of eating kosher, and maybe answer the long-standing question, why is kosher meat so expensive? After that, I'll be joined by Gabe Pulver, host of the Menchwarmers podcast, to break down the highs and lows of Canada's performance at the Maccabi Games, which wrapped up in Israel this week. Lastly, you'll hear a clip of my recent interview with Nathan Englander about his new play and what's it been like writing through the pandemic. Today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Atelier Lou Bijouterie in Montreal, Quebec. Atelier Lou specializes in watches and custom-designed jewelry along with a curated selection of designer jewelry. Visit us online or in person and Eric Goldberg will help make your jewelry dreams come true. Atelier Lou is offering a promo code for all Bonjour High listeners using BON18 at checkout for 10% off your order at atelierlou.com. So I'm here with uh, Rabbi Saul Emanuel, who is the executive director of the MK, who had reached out to us um, after we had uh, our interview with um, with Dr. Stephen Lapidus about the price of kosher meat in Montreal, about the pamphlet that they pulled out, um, and they wanted to explain their side of the story. Rabbi Emanuel, how's it going? Yes, thank God. Thank you so much for the opportunity. We truly appreciate it, and thank you for reaching out back to us. Of course. So uh, tell us, Rabbi Emanuel, what's on your mind? So first and foremost, um, thank you for the opportunity. We're very pleased that people are able to hear both sides of the story. And obviously, um, after listening to the podcast that uh, ran a couple of weeks ago, which was very interesting and very educational, was nice to have Dr. Lapidus on, there were numerous errors that were made and numerous statements that were made which were incorrect and are extremely important to the conversation. And this is what led mm-hmm. us to... Um, reach out to you to try and correct those errors and give people a better understanding and factual understanding of some of the facts that truly are happening. So go ahead, start. Uh, what what errors did you find that you want to tell us about? Okay, so the, the first thing is, it's extremely important that people understand that um, our shkita and the rabbis that represent us across the board, which is from the Sfaradi to Lubavitch to the Hasidic, all sit around the same table every single week with regards to kashrut and decision-making, with regards to kashrut in the city, are extremely sensitive to the fact that everybody has to get serviced. So, not in the particular order, but I do want to point out that Bet Yosef meat is available across Montreal every single week. We shecht and we have Bet Yosef meat, which services the Sephardi community. The second omission that I would like to mention is that when it comes to lamb, someone said we don't slaughter lamb. We slaughter lamb three times a week in Montreal. So there's plenty of lamb. This, this came up on my podcast. I don't remember discussing Bet Yosef or lamb on the podcast. Uh, both of them were mentioned on the podcast. You didn't say it, but it was mentioned by okay. Dr. Lapidus. Okay. okay. So it's, sure. important, it's important because people deserve to have it, and it's important that people should know that it's available. Okay. Another point that was mentioned was that uh, we, uh, it was spoken about that over the years, meat was imported into Montreal. Uh, there was one occasion where meat was import- imported into Montreal by somebody who imported it into Montreal. 
we did not interfere in the issue. We didn't say anything about the issue, and um, unfortunately, it failed. It did not. It was not successful. We did not. It has nothing to do with us. And so that was the only time that we know that someone imported meat. With regards to the fact that Mahadrin lost their certification, Mahadrin never ever lost their certification. A statement was made that Mahadrin lost certification and was being sold anyway. Mahadrin never ever lost their certification. Another incorrect uh, statement, but is extremely important. The other issue is that there's no slaughter in Montreal. We slaughter three times a week, four times a week in Montreal with a whole group of uh, slaughterers in about three or four different facilities. Every single week we slaughter in Montreal. So th th these are important um, points of information that people have to know about. That's fine. Excellent. Okay. So um, you were telling us that, uh, that there's no imported meat in Montreal. Is that correct? There's no important meat in Montreal. That is correct. So I, I was at a, I was at uh, Mahadran last week, and I have a photograph here that says right here, and I'll show it to you, and I'll put it on our uh, homepage if you want. I'll answer your question. You're referring to meat from Mexico. And yeah. That when, when we refer to imported meat from Montreal, I'm referring to the podcast where you mentioned that meat not within the yeah. confines of Shkita's food. So, 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 I have, so I have a thing here that says I imported mean, meat, 30, 40, 50% off that sale. Correct. So, so, you, so yes. there is imported meat that is not made in Montreal, correct? There is imported meat that is not made in Montreal, but is shechted no, under yeah. the MK with the MK group of Shochtim with it, the supervision it, of rabbinical supervision of the MK. So is it sort of, is it, hold on, but is it shechted by Montreal Shochtim? Yes. By Shochtim from Montreal? Some of them are from Montreal, some of them are from Toronto. Okay, because I have, from, um, so we have non-Montreal Shochtim slaughtering in Montreal, is that correct? Let, let, let me explain the policy of how it works. Mm -hmm. the, po the policy of how it works with regards to certifying meat that is shechted under our supervision all of the shochtim have to be approved by the rabbinical board of the MK who are responsible for kosher slaughter. Mm -hmm. Those shochtim, and over the years it's always been like this. Over the years it's been that there's been shochtim coming from the United States who work for the MK. There may have been shochtim coming from Toronto who work for the MK and vice versa. That is considered to be a Montreal shchita, according okay. to the facts of life on the ground with regards to the rabbinical board that sets the standards for shochtim, and this is across mm -hmm. the board internationally, not only by us, is that mm -hmm. if you have shochtim that are working for Montreal, for Montreal, for the mm -hmm. board of shchita of Montreal, for the rabbinical board of Montreal, that are complying with the standards of Montreal, employed by Montreal, that mm -hmm. are considered Montreal shochtim. And okay. I'll, just let me finish. So that's your interpretation. Well, May, may I finish? May I finish? Sure. It's the same thing that if you have somebody who's working in Kashrus in New York or working in Toronto, New York for the MK, they are working for the Montreal MK. So it's the same thing. Now, let me add something else. If you look at the chuva of Ramosha Feinstein that also was published, two of them written by hand by Ramosha mm -hmm. Feinstein, clearly states the same thing. Let's go back to the original intent of this idea of Basar Chutz, and it specifically talks about it in the context with Rabbi Soloveitchik of a shortage in Montreal and that this only applies to bring in meat from outside, right? And we're talking about slaughtering outside, right? Let's say from Mexico, from any, elsewhere, if there is a shortage. There's actually an international beef shortage right now. Is there, a, was there, has there been a beef shortage five years ago when you were still going to Mexico and elsewhere? Of course, that's why we had to go to Mexico, absolutely. There, there's not enough beef in Canada. There's not enough beef in Canada at all. If you go, okay. uh, Avi, if you go to if you go to Walmart this afternoon, there's no meat. If you went to Walmart yesterday, ah, there's no so, meat. Hold on a second. This decision is only as far as shortage of beef fronts are concerned, but not cuts. 
Are you telling no, me that there's I'm not just, enough giving, snakes no, or there's no. not enough let, meat? Let, let, let me explain. Let me explain. I always seem to find meat wherever I want. Okay, well, obviously, you, you, there's certain places where you're going and there's not enough meat and there isn't enough not, meat. Is there not so enough there, or is there no meat? No, it doesn't say the fact of Shechitas Chutz has got nothing to do with enough or not enough. You just mentioned of sort of course, it specifically but, says we, if it happens that there's okay, a shortage just, of there's, there's, meat, you're only referring, and a you're real only shortage, referring, not an artificial right. one. You're, you're only referring to Rav Soloveitchik's tshuva. There were other tshuvas given as well. Rav well, Hoshkin I want to hold by Rav Soloveitchik. Okay, sorry. But I'm so. I'm why to, not apply me, to the most lenient? Why are we going even, to the most strict even, of the strict of the strict? Even according to what you've just explained, yeah. yes, there is a shortage of meat in North America. And let me explain. There used to be many more abattoirs across North America that existed. Over mm -hmm. the years, unfortunately, a lot of the abattoirs have closed down. Now, remember mm -hmm. that we are not the only ones that are trying to slaughter meat. There are many American mm -hmm. companies that try and slaughter meat. Our Canadian companies sort the meat. Toronto slaughters meat. And whoever can get a day in the abattoir grabs it as quickly as they can because mm -hmm. they need all the meat that they can get. So yeah. what happens is that the local butchers in Montreal, which are the ones we are concerned about, have to grab as many days as they can get. And that is why in the past year, we started slaughtering in Calgary. We had to find another slaughterhouse because we couldn't, some of the slaughterhouses here closed, they're not operational, we couldn't get meat. So and you're following this, Chuba, you're following this thing where it says that you're saying you're ritual slaughter. Avi, may I finish what I'm saying, please? Sure. I'm so sorry. I just want to finish what I'm saying. You, it's important to hear and to understand how the system works. Then one can make a, an understanding and understand what we're saying and then make a comment. So mm -hmm. what I'm saying is, we had to go shecht in Calgary. We even mm -hmm. looked at slaughtering in Nova Scotia. We have to find more abattoirs. Why? Because there is not enough meat. So within the confines of what you just explained, of Rav Soloveitchik, since you said you want to go with his tshuva, yes, there's not enough meat, and we have to source meat elsewhere. Do you ever eat meat slaughtered by the OU? Do I? What is it, when? when? Do you ever you go to a wedding in New York? You go, you're, in, you're at a wedding in New York. You'll go eat a, a steak that's slaughtered by the OU? I will eat a steak slaughtered by a hexa that I rely upon. I, fine, I'm asking you specifically, the OU. Why must I answer specifically what I do in my personal life? I eat a hexa that I rely upon. The OU is a national hashgacha. You're telling me you don't eat meat from the OU? I, I, you just, again, you say... Do you eat meat? Hold on, fine, fine, I'll ask you. Do you eat meat that relies on a standard that is not the MK? Do you eat meat that is not the MK when you're not in Montreal? Yes. Yes. So do you mean that as soon as it comes to Montreal, it becomes trafe? No. Do you, so what you're saying is, say is that... I didn't, so, I didn't say it's trafe. I say the following. Shkita is based on the following. And this issue that you've just raised has been discussed many, many times at the Rabbonim. In Montreal, and it's been discussed by greater rabbis than the two of us, mm -hmm. in meet in Montreal, meat in Montreal, that is slaughtered in Montreal, which is the custom of Montreal, all has to be MK. Mm -hmm. The fact of somebody, the Yisr of Shechit HaSchutz does not allow, being kosher or not, we can be the greatest heksha in the world. The greatest mm -hmm. heksha in the world, that's what Rav Soloveitchik was writing, that's what Moshe Feinstein was writing. And mm -hmm. you cannot bring in any meat, no matter what heksha it has, into Montreal, because Montreal only allows that particular kind of meat. Hold on, let's recognize that the argument from history is that many, many cities had bans on shechitas chutz, and now many of them don't. So clearly they've revisited this issue, and Montreal doesn't want to. 
Right. Which which cities had bands in Schrittaskutz and revisited them? Please tell me. No, so I'll, t- I'll, I'll argue it by reverse engineering it. How many cities currently have a ban on Schrittaskutz? Australia, South yeah. Africa. Not, that's Certain a country. Australia, yeah. London, Kadassia, and London. Kadassia and London, but not but only Kadassia and, and London. And okay. And let me tell you another issue. Let me tell you another but issue. Are there cities there be, that used to have state, uh, bans on Schrittaskutz that no longer have bans on Schrittaskutz? Not to my knowledge. Oh, well, I Not can tell you knowledge. to my knowledge there were many. So name one. I asked rabbis in Kashrus, because I'm not a Kashrus expert, right? I'm just a guy that has questions, right? And I, they, I said, how many cities used to have bans on Shkitas Chutz? They told me many, many. And they said the only cities with Shkitas Chutz bans left right now are Montreal and Strasbourg. Every Kashrus person that I personally spoke and to, and, and I spoke Australia, to multiple. And South Africa. Okay, but Australia the, and South Africa. But in Europe, now, there used to be many. There used to be many cities okay, that had bans on You made a statement. You made a statement. Tell me one city. I'd like to know. I'm for telling myself. you. I'm tell giving you my. City. I'm giving you my footnote. I'm telling you. I don't know which cities it was, but I can tell you that I relied on other people who told me. So okay. you, you, you have to substantiate facts. You can't just make okay. a general statement. I'm supposing that it's about Kashrus, but it's but Kashrus clearly changes all of a sudden. We, as we said, it flips a switch when we get to Montreal that this meat no longer is acceptable in Montreal. We live in an era where Kashrus standards, right, in the 60s and the 50s and the 40s, when all of these issues were on Shkita Chutz bans, and for thousands of years beforehand, right, the issue behind Basar Chutz, Shkita Chutz, right, is about uh, believability and trust. We can't trust people because we don't know where they came from. Everybody seems to accept that that's one of the primary reasons, or if not the primary reason, why Basar Chutz was not accepted. Right. You yourself eat meat that is not slaughtered from Montreal in Montreal, outside of Montreal. But that means you clearly accept that there are national way, ways of understanding, ways of communication for where you can investigate and other people can investigate and eat meat that is kosher. Right. Made by people that are not in Montreal. So one should be able to then go and say we should revisit this idea that trust is no longer something. And I agree that maybe it's the highest, highest, highest possible level of, of kosher is that we have meat that only comes from Montreal. But we're not protecting jobs in Montreal anymore, as you say. We know what the level of trust is across the world. I know you don't want to talk about the OU. I eat meat from the OU. Everybody eats meat from the OU. I don't know a single person, right, that doesn't eat meat from the OU that doesn't trust that what they are doing is glot kosher meat. Right. They are an internationally known organization. And yet they're being told we don't trust you in Montreal because the communication, we don't know what happens. For some reason, the phones change when we get to Montreal and things are different. So that's what I'd like to know is maybe it's time that because of the level of trust and even if I agree with you, because that maybe it's about the jobs, but it's not about the jobs because we've moved on and maybe it's about the kosher and you know, but but the kosher has changed. Maybe it's time that we revisit this and we say maybe it's time the Basar Chutz gets moves on from Montreal in order to open up the market, in order to figure out that maybe we're in a different world now and that it's going to cost people less. And if it doesn't cost people less, at least at least then we know that the market has decided that this is the cost. And it's not an artificial thing around the, the MK deciding that this is where uh, slaughtering happens and how it should happen. Unfortunately, Avi, your premise is incorrect, and I'll explain all of that which you just spoke about. Okay, go ahead. Okay, the reason why we have Bosor Chutz, which will continue and will not change, is very clear. Yeah, Because someone, the status of Rabbi Hirschbrook, was reported to have said he cannot remove the ban on Bosor Chutz. You would need a Sanhedrin to do that. 
and the Rabbonim today of Montreal also state the same thing. The ban on Shechit HaSchutz was instituted by many Rabbonim before us. They will not change it. It doesn't change. It yeah, has so nothing to do with trust. Because so what does it have to do with? Get, one second. It's got nothing to do with trust. It exists because it was a fixed minag that exists in Montreal for whatever reasons it was put into place. And nobody amongst the Rabbonim that are here today believe or feel that they're able to lift that ban. So bring in all these issues that you're bringing on the sidebar that has got to do with the fact that the OU is not trusting and this one's not trusting. Everybody understands, even the OU respects it, that in Montreal, Shechita Schutz exists. It's got nothing to do with not trusting them. It's got nothing to do with their hechsha. They give so an excellent hechsha. So what does it tell us in one line? What them, does it have to do? Them. The fact of the matter is, there is an issue that was fixed in Montreal by the Varadabonim of Montreal, preceded me by many years, For preceded what the Karadabonim by For many years, reason? and the rabbis themselves say that they are not in a position to change it. It exists because the Rabbonim will massacre it, they fixed it, and it will continue. For what reason? What is the reasoning the behind reason, having a ban? We're going back again to the fact that these Rabbonim, we were not, were not around when it was done. And you've already given us some of so the now you're telling yourself. me that it's a So now you're telling me that it's what? a folk. It's a law that we don't have a reason for. No. I you, want to get you, you on the record that it's a law that we don't have a reason for. You described some of the reasons yourself. I described some of the reasons myself. But I don't have any Remote reasons for you. Because as Remote we discussed... One second. Reb Moshe Feinstein's tshuva, Reb Moshe Feinstein's tshuva, which is current because everybody still refers to Reb Moshe Feinstein. I know that you're only looking at Reb Yosef Beisolovetchik's tshuva, sure. but everybody does consult with Reb Moshe Feinstein's tshuva, and Correct. he has two written on the same day. Mm-hmm. His tshuva states very clearly, may never be changed. He himself writes it right then. He himself writes it himself. The person of the stature of Ramosha Feinstein, with arguably nobody will argue, is one of the greatest that lived. And he states in his tshuva, will and cannot be changed. Ramosha Feinstein himself, hold on, is there never a situation where Ramosha Feinstein himself changed his mind? Ramosha Feinstein initially went and said that smoking is permitted. And then initially, then he went and said smoking is forbidden. Right? That happens, Right. Somebody asks him a question 10 years later. He doesn't go and say, right, this is, not, this is my position and I'm never going to change it and it's, never, it's done. He's, Rav Moshe Feinstein was always open to revisiting it. Unfortunately, Rav Moshe Feinstein passed away. So shouldn't we pass it along to another Gadol Hador, another rabbinic figure that is towering in the community and say, maybe things have changed now. Maybe it's time that we change our minds. And I have many good reasons for why. The answer to your question, no, the answer to your question, you already gave the answer. I'll explain to you. It's actually today's Gomorrah, Pesha Osa, Pesha Hitir. Ramosha Feinstein, when he said one thing and then changed his mind, at least you had the second shuba, and he was the one who gave it, and he can undo it. Ramosha Feinstein, in this particular shuba, unfortunately never wrote a second one, even though people did go so, speak. He never changed his mind and he didn't give a chuva. So we cannot go to somebody else other than Ramosha Feinstein himself to undo the chuva. People so don't go today to somebody else and say to undo the chuva. Of course we do. Just let, like me ask you you let, me, let me finish. Let me finish. Just like you said, he gave something about smoking, one, mm-hmm. one chuva, and he gave another one. Well, he gave mm-hmm. two chuvas about shechitas chutz, but unfortunately, I never saw two chuvas to undo those two chuvas. So therefore, so, I or anybody else doesn't have the power to change it. Let me ask you something. Somebody, a woman, uh, husband disappears, right? I'm going to give you an example from a different halachic thing. A woman, her husband disappears. Technically, she is an aguna, right? She is a, a woman that is chained. 
um, and she suppose she writes she um, gets a something from a, a rabbi who says you know what um, the fact is you are a chained woman we don't have enough evidence you will always be a chained woman um, and 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 that is the case I'm sorry I cannot ever let you get married and then this rabbi passes away and then and then the husband turns up dead right do we go and say well we have a chuva and uh, now we can't ever go back on this tshuva. We can't go back on this, this rabbinic letter because this rabbi died before the evidence showed up that this person actually died, the, 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 this individual. We'd, we'd, of course, go to a new rabbi and say, now we have new evidence and, and, uh, and we have to be able to change this previous letter that says that this woman is a chained woman. We would obviously do that. We have new evidence now. We are in a new world than where they were in the 1960s. Right. I, it is not a question in my mind that this that, that does not give us opportunity to halakhically revisit this issue in front of a Beit Din, in front of a, a, a Gadol Hador, a, a rabbi who is of a towering nature in the Ashkenazi community, in the Sephardi community, wherever community you want to go and say, maybe it's time that we, re- that we re- revisit this. You said we have an ancient custom and we cannot change it. So what we have done, what we have done in order to make it. Um, that this policy remains is that we have allowed shechita to take place in other places using the basis of shechita's chutz conditions to make it happen. Such yeah, but, but you're still the ones you're still the ones regulating it. If we had other people be, in the market, we will, we, 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 so we will. But if we had other people in the market, issues, maybe maybe will, the price we, will go down. Avi, the, okay, as far as the price is concerned, I also want to address that issue. Um, you, you spoke about at the beginning of the last um, piece that how can you compare Toronto to Montreal? 58%, less yeah, less yeah, cost mm-hmm. of living. When it comes to the price of a piece of meat, mm-hmm. it has nothing to do with the cost of living. Of course because it does. The price, okay, of course it does. The butcher's may, price may, is, is may, predicated may, on may the I rent and how much he can get away with. Avi, right, and if, if people are earning more in Manhattan, right, and rent costs okay. a lot of money, then the price of meat in Manhattan is going to be much more expensive. That is, uh, that's a basic okay. fact I'm, of economics. Okay. The, 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 your premise is incorrect, and I'll explain why. Okay. When it comes to a piece of meat that is being shechted and being sold to the butcher, be it in Mexico, be it in Calgary, be it in Toronto, wherever it is, the piece of meat that they are buying is the mm-hmm. price of meat. The guy, the guy who's selling the price of meat <laughs> to New York from Mexico or to or to Montreal from Mexico is charging sure. the same. I'm giving an example. Sure, but you're giving, example, but your article, your pamphlet, your pamphlet pointed out the price of retail meat, and the price of retail meat is not something that we can go and just compare apples to apples. It's six dollars a pound here. It's seven dollars, six dollars a pound there. Right, you're talking about wholesale meat. Wholesale meat price is fine. Let's say I agree with you. I'm not enough of an economist to be able to make that decision. But but I know if the price in the, of meat in New York is at retail level is the same price as in Montreal, but the cost of living is twice as expensive in New York as it is in Montreal, then you're telling me that the price of meat in New York is twice as cheap as it is and Montreal is twice as expensive. That, that, that's exactly incorrect when it comes to meat because in kosher meat, let's take a, a, the brief beef for example. If you're slaughtering a hundred beef and yeah. only thirty come kosher, sure. seventy of them have to but be sold presume, as non-kosher. Seventy sure. of them have to but be sold presume, as non-kosher. Let's presume that so, in Toronto and in Montreal, right, the same issues that happen in kosher in Tor- in Montreal will happen in Toronto and will happen in New York. So that's why if you look at the spread of kosher to non-kosher meat and you say, you know what, non-kosher meat costs $2 a pound and kosher meat costs $4 a pound. 
everywhere in the world, right, the price of meat, of kosher meat, is approximately twice the price of non-kosher meat. But in Montreal, it happens to be three times the price. Then you know that there's something wrong in Montreal. That's how you're able to make those decisions. So the fact of the matter is that it's not like that. And and I, I challenge you. I challenge you, go to New York now, look at the price of non-kosher towards kosher. This is what they've done. It's different. Are you aware that during the last, I think it's twice during the last eight years, a commission was appointed to come and find out about the price of meat? I think one of them was commissioned by Federation and I sat for many hours and we gave them all the numbers, took them all through the whole thing. And guess what, Avi? They didn't yeah. publish the results. Do you know why they didn't publish the results? Why? Both of them didn't publish the results because they found out very quickly that the price in Montreal was cheaper than anywhere else. So they had if, the commission was appointed. If that was the case, then we should be proud of this and we should publish it. Why don't you, I, I, Avi, do it yourself. I go to New York every week. I'm leaving this afternoon. I go to All New right. York every week. Okay, and I check the prices when I go there. I'm not mm-hmm. talking about when you can buy something. Let me finish, please. When you can buy something on sale, you can buy something sure. on sale. You can sure. buy something on sale here too. Sure. Sometimes sure. you'll get meat over here much cheaper than there. If For you're sure. talking about the constant price, the constant price of meat on a regular basis between here and New York, Montreal compares very favorably to New York. When you're referring to people saying it's cheaper, it's on a sale. I go, you can go to Monza, you can go to New York. We could, in fact, you don't even have to do that. All you have to do is go online, go to go go to all the stores you want, anyone you want, check the cuts of meat and make the study and publish it on your website every okay. week. Why don't you do that? So let's so let's let's summarize now, okay? So uh, because we really should wrap this up. You um, we started with this idea of Basar Chutz, and Basar Chutz, you you told me historically was because of trust issues and was because of jobs for the shochtim. And nowadays, we don't really have a reason for it anymore because, as you pointed out, I the did shochtim... Not, no, you said... I pointed so, sorry, out, sorry, sorry, sorry. No. You said that. I didn't say that. Okay. You said that things should be changing. Yeah. I made it very clear that the Torah that was given then and the edicts that were given by Ara Bonim years mm-hmm. ago still continue to exist and we don't have the power to change them. And I, so I think you're wrong. You, and so I'll tell you, this is so where I'll tell you I think you're wrong. You, <laughs> because you, at the end so of the day, we change halakha all the time. Orthodoxy changes with new evidence all the time. Right? Oh, the Torah, no, I must tell you something. Orthodoxy, That's and you know and I know, but orthodoxy changes If you want, we can have a different, if you want, we can have a, if you want, I don't mind debating you on orthodoxy changing Allah all the time. I must be very clear, that is your position. As far as we are concerned, the Torah that was given at Sinai remains the same Torah, remains the same halacha. It never changes. It never will change. It'll always be and it will always exist. And we will always keep it the way it was. You may want to say that, no, it's evolving. Torah does change. Things are changing. Things are happening. The Torah addressed every single issue. Shulchan Aruch addresses and saw and will see and will exist and will address every single thing that was given then. It doesn't change. It will for sure. So that premise me and you are arguing about will always be like that. You're going to say no. it's changing. You know and I know that you bring somebody, you bring a halakha to a posik, to a, to a halakhic decider, and you say 20 years ago we were here, and now we are here, and the posik goes and says, you are right, this is the way that the halakha is now going forward. 
not the halacha is now. This is the way the halacha was then, and this is what we can do with what the halacha said then, now. That's what okay, the halacha is. Okay, so then be. let's go and say that maybe so one the second, trust issue... One second, one second, I want to make, make a correction. I would like to make a correction of it. Well, you can't make a I'm correction. Halacha is always halacha. I would like to make a correction regarding Ramosha again. I said to you, you said... And you had a valid question. You mm -hmm. said, Ramosha sometimes had one shuva where he said no or yes, and then he changed his mind and he changed it around. I said, Ramosha had two chuvas on Shechit HaSchutz. Unfortunately, I never ever saw another chuva that Ramosha wrote to undo what he wrote. The only sure. person who can... Un well, please wait a moment. The only person that can undo the chuva is the person himself. That's so not Ramosha true. You know that and I know that. Okay. You know you that, and I know that, that that's not you true. Did, you, did, you see how you, you, you just gave the example. That the Ramosha example of somebody... Yes, no. no, so I was trying so to prove that to show that either I'm, you're going to tell me that the halacha never changes, or you can tell me that halacha can be undone, and then you're telling me the halacha can only be undone by one person. And the fact is, the halacha cannot be undone by one person. If a person passes no, away, no. somebody I else can go that. and say Ramosha, that the halacha has no. changed. I'm based on your premise, Abhi, I said. <laughs> You keep Ramosha's saying based on my premise. <laughs> on your premise that you said he wrote one yes and then he wrote no, I said that if Ramosha had written the second chuva, I'd be with you. But he didn't write a second chuva. He didn't undo it. So therefore, I don't have the power to undo it. So so let's wrap it up and state that Shechita Schutz exists because it was fixed many, many years ago in For no, and So we only keep it as a halacha, as a historical record. That's what I want to know on the record. Why do we still keep it? Because we historically we we've always kept it. We keep it because of numerous reasons which you enumerated earlier, okay. which continue to exist and which... which no, but they, they don't. We completely, we discussed, we said that they do not exist anymore, the reasons why we, why we they, had it. They because, do exist. No, you don't keep jobs. You don't keep jobs I, in Montreal. Rabbi Emanuel, you. you don't keep jobs yes. in Montreal. And you trust non-Montreal Hashkacha. You don't trust non-Montreal Hashkacha. And I, I, you I don't keep you, jobs I, in Montreal. I, I, I'm going to summarize it by saying the following. <laughs> I'll summarize it by saying the following. The jobs of the Shochtim in Montreal who we employ, of all the Shochtim in Montreal with regards to beef, we do keep the jobs. Do we require more shochtim to shecht for us? So then train Montrealers. Train Montrealers. So you have to do. keep jobs. No, the, the, the ban specifically Abby, says Abby. that you have to bring in people yes, not right. from Montreal. You have to bring people every, from Montreal. Every single week, we look for more people in Montreal who would like to learn shechita. There's not a bevy of people that are looking to learn shechita. So what we do really? is... Really? I want to learn shechita. I want to learn shechita. I can find you 20 people tomorrow that will want to learn shechita. That are trustworthy individuals. Can we can we knock on your door tomorrow? Abby, unfortunately, I wish I could finish. Unfortunately, my meeting you have is to go. here. That's fine. If you if you'd like so, to carry this on at any time, I'm ready. Okay, so I just want to get on the record that for you, history it trumps the the reasons why, and for the people that are complaining no, history, that the meat no. is expensive, summary, that Buster Foots is the there, the, and the, for the because not, first, that's yeah, it. So, so let, let's conclude the following: meat, yeah. as far as we are concerned. Meat is not more expensive. Okay. As far as we are concerned, you it's live not in a just bubble. beef. One, one second, one second. The fact, the fact of the matter is that we are continuing shechita schutz based on the fact that it was set up by those before us. We don't have the power to remove it. Mm -hmm. And the reasons for it also continue to exist and only strengthen the fact that it's important okay. to keep it going. Because it protects customers, it protects course. jobs. Despite the fact that I've gone, despite the fact that I've gone and demonstrated that those reasons don't exist anymore. So now I have one last question. You, one last question for you. Like anyway, I've yes. got one last yes. question for you. Now, 
I'm wrapping this up. One last question. I, I, Michael, I got to ask one last question. <laughs> I got to ask you one last question. If you, uh, if the MK was brought, had a hasmana, had a, a summons to come to a, a din Torah from, let's say, the Beth Din of America by some other plaintiff saying that we would like to revisit this with, with the MK, because you're confident that, that what you're saying is right, would you be willing to come and reaffirm it in front of a Beit Din of, uh, of poskim, of gedolim, of halachic deciders um, about halacha? Would you be willing to show up um, in this what case you, to, to re- re-examine it? What, what you do is, you, I, I can't answer for the Vararabonim. I did not. No. I'm, I'm just someone who I'm just somebody who makes sure that things happen as per their requirements. What somebody wants to do, they send Hasmona to the Vararabonim. Of course, they're going to respond and they'll tell them whether they're willing to appear and what they want to do. No problem. You send Hasmona. That's how people do it. I can't tell you what somebody would you be. No, but would you would you agree to appear? I'm not the one. I'm not the one getting the Asmona. It would be the Rabbonim who makes Would the Rabbonim agree to appear at a Beitin to revisit I can, this? I can't answer. Uh, the answer, Abby, is you've got to send them the summons. I can't, you can't, I can't tell you whether someone gets a summons from civil court if they're going to appear be, or not. What you would be the conditions them. by which you would agree to revisit I'm, this? I'm, I can't tell you the answer because I'm not the okay. Rabbonim. So, I'm not the one excellent. getting the Thank you for all of the non-answers Thank you've you. given us today. We appreciate it. Welcome back to Bonjour Chai. Uh, as we all know, I am the one host who does not care about sports, does not follow sports, does not know a lot about sports. So I, I apologize in advance. <laughs> no, this is good. This is this is why we're we're chatting here. It's just, I get to talk to I get to mansplain all of this, and it's a blast. Tell me uh, a bit about the Maccabiya Games and why someone like me would be interested in such an event. That's a great question. Um, you know, to put it really quickly, the Maccabi Games are the Jewish Olympics. Uh, imagine the Olympics, except everyone is a Jew. Uh, now, like, you know, stop laughing and imagine it. The performance is actually pretty good. We have, you know, it is it is the third largest sporting event in the world, of sort of an international sporting event. Uh, there's about 10,000 athletes, which puts it just smaller than the Pan Am Games, but larger than the Winter Olympics. Um, it has, I think it was 21 sports this year. So it's, you know, got, it's a huge, you know, international, the best athletes from all over the world who are Jewish compete in it in, in a ton of different sports and they all come to Israel. The reason it exists is actually really interesting. It was founded or it was started, um, you know, in the 1930s as a way to sort of spirit international Jews and refugees into British Palestine. Okay, that's interesting. You got my attention now. I agree. We actually have a whole episode of, I think it was about two years ago, on the Menschwarmers talking about the history of the Maccabi Games. But it was it was started as a way to get what was called white papers at the time, which was ways, sort of your your admission pass into, uh, into British Palestine, soon to be Israel. Um, and then a lot of the athletes were just sort of convinced to stay to be part of the Israel project as as they were looking for Jews from all over the world, both as a way to get in past, um, you know, uh, uninterested border guards and as a way to build uh, uh, the community inside the country. And now I guess it's about 80 odd years later. Um, it is a great opportunity for Jews of all ages 
and all not necessarily all skill levels they do have to be good i'm not going for any particular sport because i'm not good at any of them but uh for for the best jews in the world to actually compete against each other and canada sent a good number of athletes uh, the u.s actually sent a larger delegation to this year's mccovey games than they did to the 2020 olympics so oh, wow. it's it's a really big deal if you're a jewish athlete from all over the world it's also an opportunity to like actually travel for sports you know i i to get an international tournament is pretty exciting to play in it no matter who you are so i'm Curious to know whether this has any widespread appeal outside of the Jewish community, because you think about all these different things that started out of a necessity, even hospitals, the Jewish General Hospital, Mount Sinai Hospital, just to name a few. It started out, uh, you know, as places that were established because Jews weren't allowed in other avenues. And in this case, you just gave the backstory. Does anyone care about these who isn't Jewish? Hard to say. There was actually some like geopolitical intrigue at this year's Maccabia games. Tell me more. Um, which non-Jews might have cared about. Traditionally, the people that care about Jewish athletes are Jews and neo-Nazis. That's not terrifying um, so at all. they probably cared, as in, like, here's a, a summit of the Jews <laughs> oh, we can, God. like, we can, like, shake our fists at. But uh, I, for geopolitical reasons, Joe Biden actually was at the Maccabia games um, and was part of the opening ceremonies, in addition to a bunch of Israeli Olympians. It was also, if you follow Israeli politics, it was Yair Lapid's sort of first big event in the country as prime minister. Um, so it was a big deal for him and for the sort of overall community for Biden to show up and, and like, you know, wave his hand at all of the athletes as if it was the Olympics. Um, one thing, I mean, Ultimately, all of the medalists are Jewish. As a people, we swept all of the categories. So if you're not, like, interested in the <laughs> success of Jewish sports, I'm right. not sure why non-Jews would, would be into it. Other an than ethnic maybe curiosity. Like an ethnic curiosity. Um, so how did Canada do in all of this? Canada did pretty well. As expected, we did very, very well in the hockey. Mm. Um, in the, in, I, now I sound Israeli. The in the hockey, the Canada hockey? did good. Um, exactly. The hockey... We, uh, we actually, we won gold in both men's and women's events, including, uh, a few guests that were on the Mench Warmers podcast. If, if listeners want to go back and listen just before they left, we interviewed two members of the, uh, uh, women's and one member of the men's hockey team who are now gold medalists. Um, Canada did quite well also in baseball and softball, sort of the traditional North American sports you'd expect to see us too. Um, what is, I guess, surprising if you're... Jewish, but unsurprising if you've ever met an Israeli person. Um, Israel tends to really dominate the physical and combat sports. You know, judo, weightlifting, uh, uh, water polo, basketball even, uh, rugby. Israel sort of wins all of those. Uh, it might be a show of military might, but it's definitely something that they're better at than Canadians. Um, also, as expected, America tends to do really good at everything. They won the overall medal count. But Canada, you know, is the best at a lot of sports around the world. And that was like hockey, like softball, baseball, soccer, we did okay in, but that sort of generally goes to show what we can, what we can expect to see success in. Something that I found really exciting in the finals, actually, the overall finals, Israel beat Canada in baseball. Um, and the Israeli baseball team is like slowly growing, getting better and better and better every year. Um, they were at the last Olympics. They're going to be in the European Championship shortly. They're in the World Baseball Classic. They do feature a lot of American Jews on both teams, but hmm. this was a team of Israelis wow. that beat a uh, team of Canadians. Um, so that's pretty exciting here. Um, but Canada did did well. You know, they won medals in a whole bunch of different disciplines. 
And it w- I would call this delegation a success. All right. Well, if you uh, want to hear more about this, you can check out the Menschwarmers podcast. Do you have any upcoming uh, episodes related to this? Or you're moving on from Maccabea? No. Well, you know, our, our sort of Maccabea spectacular was last our last episode. So if you go on your podcast app and find it two weeks ago, um, I think it came out exactly two weeks ago during the week of the 11th. Um, we're on there. Um, this week's show actually coming out, I think coming out either today or tomorrow, depending on when this show gets released, features former Maccabi gold medalist, former Israeli Olympian uh, and LPGA Tour member Leticia Beck, um, who we have a great conversation about golf, being Israeli, performing, or performing, uh, competing as an Israeli um, and as a Jew. Um, so not necessarily Maccabi related, but Maccabi adjacent for sure. All right. Well, everyone should go check that out. Thanks so much, Gabe. Always a pleasure. And now here's my chat with writer Nathan Englander. We spoke over Zoom earlier this month to talk about the premiere of the stage adaptation of his book, What We Talk About When We Talk About Anne Frank. From what I understand, you're adapting another one of your stories into a theatrical production. Is that right? Yes. Um, When my first book came out uh, in... 99 or whatever it is for the relief of unbearable urges right after it came out they said uh someone called and said Nora Ephron you know the the everything the essayist the director the screenwriter the everything oh but they said Nora wants to have lunch with you uh and I was like okay and again I'd never you know I didn't know people like that or anything anyway point is I went to meet Nora at Barney Greengrass because she said she was putting on her full Jewish for me and you know, took me for bagels and locks. Anyway, but she said, I have a story, The 27th Man. And she's like, I read mm-hmm. this story, like, nice to meet you. Like, this is a play. I'm going to produce it. I'm going to teach you how to write plays. And I said, I have another oh, wow. book to write first. You know, I, again, also another thing I don't know how to do is to be um, people who look at like career paths where I'm like, what would be the most advantageous? Anyway, but I was like, I would like to write my literary novel first. So I spent a decade, uh, writing my Argentina novel. Point is I'd have lunch with Nora or go for dinner, or hang out, whatever. But yeah, she waited. And when I, that book was done like a decade later, I wrote her a play. She taught me how to write it and mm-hmm. then produced it. And that was the first play. And yes, mm-hmm. so I had already adapted one story um, into a play which premiered at The Public, mm-hmm. directed by Barry Edelstein, and then moved to the Old Globe in San Diego with Barry when he took over. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Lincoln Center commissioned, I have a book, um, what we talk about when we talk about Anne Frank. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, I wrote this story, which is basically the Anne Frank game, which is it's it's you know now I can use play jargon, which I never get to do. You um, you definitely can go for it. Yeah, like like a four hander. We get to yeah. say four hander, mm-hmm. but there's a there's a kid in it four plus you know five hander. <laughs> but the point is not a, you know it's it's very much set in like a kitchen, a living room, a yard. And uh, so, yes, it was a Lincoln Center commission and we had some wonderful readings over the years or whatever. And then I just love, I love working with Barry Edelstein. And, you know, these things take a long time. And Barry's like, I'm a director. I have a theater. Like, let's, do you want to, like, I will do this right now. Like, put it on stage. And I was like, great. The other thing that Barry does is I am nothing if not, uh, I try to be uh, full of humility. Like, know what you don't know. We, as an American, we could have used that in our uh, governance um, and, and yeah, but uh, especially in the last years, but it's still in other ways, but nonetheless, yes, um, expertise in your field is pretty much a good, that used to be a good thing. Um, anyway, he spends time with me. 
So for my whole first year in Canada, I would mm -hmm. just rewrite, send in pages, and like every Thursday or Friday, we'd meet mm -hmm. and draft, and that's that. So yes, wrote it. Uh, Barry's been, you know, artistic directing it, dramaturging, dramaturgically. Yeah. He's been my dramaturge, mm -hmm. and uh, yes, we were supposed to open summer of 2020, but guess uh, what? Happened? Okay. Okay, so this is a show that you've already finished quite a long time ago then. You're just waiting for it to be mounted. Um, yes like and no. Been... Okay, go ahead. Uh, well, I would say yes and no in that this gets to your levels of uh, religiosity. So there's like the Basharity things where you're like, oh, that's Basharity. People can find meaning in everything. So I mm -hmm. think you have to be extraordinarily faithful to be like, I got run over by a bus. Like it was meant to be. Like right. probably maybe you should have looked both ways or the bus driver shouldn't have been texting. Like, it's not great to get run over by a bus like this, this, uh, and again, the, the tragedy and shock and disruption and the, you know, uh, infinite, uh, loss of life that couldn't be stopped. Plus the infinite loss of life that really could have been avoided. Wear a mask. Um, anyway, but the point is, um, Yes, the play was delayed for two years. I'm so thankful that it's still opening, but I really, I'm a compulsive redrafter and life is confusing to me. Like if you just ask me, you know, what socks to wear, that takes me all day to, everything's confusing to me. And I will draft things just, you know, infinitely. Like you draft and redraft, but there has, there does have to artistically, there has to be a, a point where something is finished. Like right. to me, I, I it creeps me out when, writers or artists are like oh you know did you see that like movie i was in i could have used one more take and i'm like fuck to do another take like you know shoot some more film it's probably digital it's not going to cause you know just mm -hmm. so i just can't when people want to rewrite their books after that like I, I really like this notion that when something goes into the world that's when it's done so in that same way an answer of your question to your question of 400 hours ago i am really thankful to like revisit this like I have I just I'm clearing the decks so I have a full solid month before rehearsals just to rewrite like I look at page one okay. and I start wincing I'm glad the actors are taking the parts that we've cast I'm glad the theater's happy I'm glad that we had a final rehearsal draft but like for me this is artistically I will turn the and again, separate from all the world stuff that deserves all its respect, but just mm -hmm. if we're just looking at the continuum and artistically, I am so excited to get to pick up a play two years later yeah. and rewrite it. Like it's going to be like, if it's already, I always tell my grad students, I'm on faculty at NYU. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. I tell them like your best joke in this draft, that's now your worst joke. That becomes the bar when this is done. Right. I want your most killer line. I want that to be the weakest, still above the line, but like that becomes your weakest. Like that's where we're going to take it to. So I'm thrilled if they were ready to put on this version, but I am so excited. And again, you don't get hindsight in life. I think that's why a lot of us do write is for mm -hmm. hindsight, you know, where I'm like, oh, that's what I should have said in my meeting with you. Like in my interview, I was like, oh, I'll put it in a story. Like that would have been a good joke. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, she hung up. So, <laughs> I, I, you know, so I, I know what the world, you know, has become in the interim two years. Like mm -hmm. it was going to go on before. I know a pandemic's coming. I know Russia's like, you know, that whatever we thought Russia was, that it's going to invade Ukraine. Right. I know that like Biden's going to win. But, uh, you know, I mm -hmm. know about our, you know, infinite shootings are just not going to fucking stop in America because 
everyone is too greedy or cowardly or just evil to take, you know, guns from, you know, assault rifles from, you know, 18 year olds or any age. You don't really need an assault rifle unless you're in a war, but don't have a war either. So, so are these uh, themes that you just mentioned, you're planning to maybe integrate them into the script or it's just uh, fresh eyes? So there are, um, I'm very interested, you get different interesting over the years. Like I wrote two novels to, back to back, which I can't believe I get to say out loud. Like I've never done that before. Like, mm-hmm. you know, some friends turn out a book a year. I mean, I know, you know, like I know, you know, Joyce Carol Oates, you know, like Joyce puts out two books a year, if not three or maybe four, you know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? Like, I'm not uh, that way. Like when I finish a novel that's taken years, the first page and the, it has to be one unbroken dream. And like the person finishing a book, if, if I use my Argentina novel as an example, I started that, you know, in whatever, a million years ago. I was living in Jerusalem when I started it. And then I wrote in the States, it was before September 11th. And like that right. book, one of the key points I was using was the end of habeas corpus. Like to me, I, I it was a look at like justice. I'm very interested in justice, injustice, but nonetheless, if I was... Mm. As a person sitting there in Jerusalem during a peace process, there was a peace process. I, you know, I started it probably before Intifada too, when when things were really still going to happen. But I thought, what's the end of society? Like, what's the end of democracy? And I was like, habeas corpus, the mm. chance to challenge your incarceration. And then, you know, that book took me a decade to draft. Within like two years, we had Guantanamo Bay open in the states. There's still people there. Like yeah. seven years in, I forget who it was. Colin Powell's like you know, uh, the person one step below him saying like, I, I just thought of that quote the other day. Oh yes, it's seven years later, there were still innocent people there. And I was like, oh my God, you know, like, so how do you write a book when your own country is, can no longer be defined as a democracy by the most mm-hmm. basic definition, which is you get you have a right to trial, you know? So I'm just saying the world changes around you yeah. and I have changed and the world has changed. and and. It's like a different me going back to the mm. work. So that makes sense. But it's not, it's not not direct. Or it's mm-hmm. sort of direct, but fiction or story should not be like you know, milk that if you leave it out, it spoils. So it's very easy if you know what I'm saying, if you were if you wrote your story because you were mad about something that happened last year, well, I've got 10,000 more things for you to be mad about. Like you can, <laughs> you know, or just distraction. Like who, you know what I'm saying? If mm-hmm. if I was rewriting the play and I put in like 17 minute, you know, barn burner speech in the middle about like Johnny Depp and Amber Heard trial, like it's not going to read the same in five years, yeah. I hope. You yeah. know, so I think it's more the like, metaphysical Mm. world changes and not Mm. saying like oh like i'm mad at like you know what's wrong with ted cruz (laughs) you know i'm saying like you know so so when is the the play set to open i know these things first preview is september 11th and opening night september 18th and and it's premiering at which theater at the at the old globe in san diego which is like i know this is canadian but like we like just in America, you know, just, um, and often, play. anyway, we have some wonderful public theaters in America, like, you know, the Old Globe at San Diego, mm-hmm. the public in New York, like yeah. Berkeley Rep, you know, there's just these, so yeah, San Diego is, it's just a dream, and it's it's set in the park, it's bucolic, I mean, mm-hmm. we're inside, but I'm saying the theater, like, okay. even that idea of theater experience, walking through a gorgeous park 
to the theater mm. this building popping up it's and they're wonderful i had the best experience with them i love everybody on the team on the old team the new team you know mm -hmm. and theaters changed a lot back to the moment in terms oh, of yeah. like tectonic shifts of people adjusting um yeah. i do want to i do want to talk to you a bit about playwriting in general what excites you about adapting your work for the stage what do you find oh, what what value do you get added to your storytelling um that's such a great question you're like i didn't ask you to rate my questions but nonetheless that's a great question um in general if it wasn't like back to things that feel like super fortunate like a you know like the Nora thing, like if it wasn't the way she pitched it to me and if it wasn't her, someone who I admired mm. so much, like right. I, I'm one of those people who says no to stuff. Like I'm just not, I just want to do my work. I write fiction. Like mm -hmm. point is I wanted to give these people a story. I hate that sort of sense of injustice. Like you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't be someone like Stalin, like a true despot who's, you know, killed millions upon millions upon millions. And like, you shouldn't get to erase people and win. And I was like, well, now there's a story. Like my people are made up with the spirit of them. Like anyone who read it, I'm like, well, now they're alive for these people. And I have to say, mm -hmm. seeing actors play parts, I'd never thought about it that way, but, but seeing them, these writers like trod the boards or whatever you're supposed to say, but like, you know, seeing them on stage being alive, I was like, oh, this is a whole different kind of living. A quick programming note, we mentioned last week that Hello Montreal planned to respond to our story on why they sort of disappeared for the last few years, but they changed their mind and have decided not to comment. If you want to hear the full story, you can go back to last week's episode. Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week of July 29th, Shabbat Parashat Matot Maaseh. Our producer is Michael Freeman, technical production by Andre Goulet. Our music is by So Called. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes at thecjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like Bonjour Chai, please help us to grow the Frozen Chosen community by telling a friend about us and getting them to subscribe. And as always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at thecjn.ca. Yeah.